Blog Hello, Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Gar- Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies Blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and the Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now sitting in for Neil this week, it's your host, Charles Marshall. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Neil Garfield Show. It is March 18th, 2021. And, yes, we are still in COVID land and COVID-19. That uh, all-encompassing viral contagion and uh, government-driven something-something um, certainly beyond the scope of all uh, all that I can discuss, but I will get into how the COVID-19 response, the, the interplay and interlay of government action, court action, institutional action, all comes together to make uh, the lives of uh, homeowners, particularly in foreclosure, more difficult, more compromised, uh, more complicated, frankly, because increasingly it's very difficult to decide when you're a homeowner when foreclosure, or you have an unlawful detainer situation where your property has gone to sale. Uh, it's very difficult to decide in that situation how precisely to navigate these waters. Treacherous is an understatement uh, because the COVID-19 interplay makes everything much more complicated. So the lens I will put on this today is meant to encompass even judicial foreclosure cases. Uh, there will be an emphasis on the non-judicial front, particularly uh, my experience of it here in California. And uh, one thing I will say is that in terms of trends, I'm seeing uh, absolutely a uh, a trend in California with non-judicial foreclosures. And particularly if you are in a Ninth Circuit state, uh, such as Montana, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, Arizona, Hawaii is a little bit uh, different situation, even though they are in the Ninth Circuit, uh, because they're nominally a judicial foreclosure state. So, that is really the dominant means of foreclosure there. So what I'm about to talk about in terms of getting into some of the details doesn't really apply so much in Hawaii, but it does apply in all these other uh, Mountain West states, including and especially California. What is it I'm describing? Well, what it is is there is an absolute trend to take non-judicial foreclosure cases filed in state court and to remove them to federal court. And I'm even seeing servicers do this in some cases. Typically, it would be a sales trustee 
who would do the removal to federal court. And we'll go over briefly some of the reasons why these cases are removed. Uh, one of the main reasons they end up being removed is because institutional advantage. So many of the defendants in these cases are institutional defendants, sometimes even when they are in individuals, such as somebody involved with notarizing or somebody involved with robo-signing documents. Uh, those types of individuals are sometimes brought into these actions and named as defendants. Typically, they will get an institutional attorney firm coming in for them, just as the U.S. Bank Trust, the uh, uh, various uh, Chase and Wells Fargo uh, banking uh, entities, the, uh, you know, kind of absolute alphabet soup of other trusts that we often see out there. These entities uh, have a direct motivation to take these cases into federal court. Even though, as I say, it's often the sales trustee rather than the nominal trust who, as defendant, will take the case into federal court. Now I'm seeing even services taking the case into federal court. And remember, the legal basis for doing that is this, this notion of so-called diverse defendants. Uh, that's not uh, your brother's or your sister's diversity. This is not about uh, racial or ethnic parity or representation of a certain group in a certain arena. It's not that type of diversity. This is about a very old school definition of diversity where these individual defendants are in essence when they're in different states considered to be foreign defendants uh, when there was really such a thing as state rights when it really had let's say presence and and was concept filled in reality not just theory as now then you might have a situation where you had a plaintiff in California and a defendant in New York and so the New York would be inclined to remove the case to New York because it would be hard to defend in California. True diversity under the law, and there is a federal statute, of course, related to all this, going back to the 1800s when this was a thing, when it was a big deal to travel from New York to California. Well, it's now a big deal in the last year to travel from New York to California, but that's a that's a COVID angle that's beyond the discussion of, of, of today's show. What I will get to is that, in principle, the idea that let's say you're a California plaintiff and let's say the defendant is headquartered in Arizona and another defendant is in Utah and another defendant is in Minnesota, that's quote-unquote complete diversity. And any one of those defendants hypothetically could remove the case uh, from plaintiff is sued into federal court in that state. Uh, the idea is that the feds would be less prejudiced 
Um, sometimes, historically, you could get the removal to one of the defendant state, the states, but that's really unusual. The typical site of removal is the plaintiff's state. The thinking is that the feds will be less potentially biased on behalf of the state uh, plaintiff. And uh, if there's even one defendant who's also a California defendant where you have a California plaintiff, then you don't have true diversity, meaning if there are two plaintiffs from the same state, I'm sorry, if there's one if you have your plaintiff and you have two defendants from the same state, even if there are a bunch of other defendants from different states, that's not true diversity. And theoretically, even though you will see removals, that's a bad remove. Parties are all headquartered in different states other than the one they're being sued from. Then that's true diversity. And, you know, that's the case that, I mean, if you, if you as plaintiff file a remand, it's called a remand action, a remand motion, to get the case back in state court, oftentimes you will win that, but not necessarily. And, you know, uh, I think those who have listened to me through the years will know I have certain, uh, shall we say, ways of describing a lot of, of the things that go on in the foreclosure arena. And, yes, is there institutional bias that infects the federal system? Absolutely. And I would say, we hear about it, and it's very real, bribe-taking and just, you know, that kind of under-the-table, fraud-based bias. We hear about that, especially at the state level. I think it is less likely at the federal level for a lot of reasons. But I think it also can be covered up at the federal level, and you won't see uh, sort of Obvious transparent bribes. You you will see a much more sophisticated interlay of communications that we are not privy to in the vast majority of situations, where what amounts to uh, a pay-to-play is going on, but we're not going to be able to see that. And is that a legal opinion for our uh, friends from the other side on this show's uh, antenna today? No, that's not my legal opinion. This show does not dispense legal advice. This show is for information only. And it is kind of meant to be entertaining. I mean, I would hope, and I do make it my purpose to make this show entertaining in some respects, uh, though it should be understood that entertainment isn't the main goal. It's a byproduct, I'm hoping. I'm hoping that the way I present information and uh, what documentation I can reference in this show is not only help uh, brings cheer to people, whatever side of the aisle they're on, as it were. Uh, so once these cases are in federal court, and, okay, why are they doing this? Why is this a COVID-19 trend? It's a COVID-19 trend in non-judicial states, particularly California, because – the states are still largely bogged down with a really complicated, again, sort of government court architecture of overlapping and contradictory and confusing COVID-19 guidelines. 
such that these cases can get even more bogged down in state court than they would be normally. I think there's a perception among the public, I doubt, among listeners. I think the listeners to the show are more savvy. I think there may be a perception among the public that federal court is is kind of a slower place for your case to be. I mean, nothing could be further from the truth. Court fast tracks, and there's, there's been laws on that now going back decades. Uh, many state courts have fast track systems. So does California. Uh, it doesn't stop cases from getting bogged down here in California at the state level, the Superior Court level. And absolutely, COVID-19 is slowing down cases. And, you know, in a lot of situations, delays are your friend, even in a non-judicial foreclosure setting. Because it is still the case that a lot of institutional defendants will put sales off while the litigation is pending. Sometimes they push sales. And this is another trend. And I have to say it's a COVID-19 trend because it's happening in the COVID-19 era. So I don't know that COVID-19 restrictions are causing this per se, but I think to some extent they are. Um, Institutional players of all kinds do not like uncertainty. That's why, by the way, a lot of institutional defendants will postpone sale dates even through an appellate period because they don't like uncertainty. They want to crush the homeowner. They want to get the home from the homeowner. And they want to sell it at an auction sale, even if they're not made whole, which they aren't in a number of cases, for a variety of reasons, which, you know, have been discussed on this show multiple times in terms of how the non-judicial foreclosure framework works and properties underwater, properties with equity, how that all plays out at the auction level. Suffice to say that there are a lot of motivations for institutional players to take properties to sale. Now, there are a lot of federal laws and even state laws in a place like California to motivate uh, institutional servicers and sales trustees. They're trying to motivate them the other way. They're trying to give them reasons to review for loan mod, trying to put money in their pocket in some ways uh, to give them an incentive. Uh, On the other hand, There's no question that COVID-19 has slowed down the foreclosure process. The moratoriums, this is another matter for discussion today. Uh, The moratoriums, I'm not saying they're off or they've gone away in California. It's way too complex for me to kind of relate the national picture. There is a trend, though, I have seen of moratoriums going away. So I I think that is absolutely a trend. On the other hand, they are still in place in some capacity in a lot of states. So you will still get delays of foreclosure in parts of California, especially northern California. Um, But there has been, you know, more or less a release for certain types of foreclosures, including most non-judicial foreclosures of the type that people come onto this show to uh, find out about. And same thing with UD evictions following an auction sale. I'm seeing an absolute acceleration in those cases going to motion for summary judgment hearings when those are scheduled, going to um, trial, UD trial, when those are scheduled. And I do have 
some strategy to impart on the UD front, particularly here in California. I think one aspect that, uh, because UD plaintiff's attorneys tend to do, they tend to do one of the following strategies. They either go for a motion for summary judgment, and if they go for a motion for summary judgment, they don't even have to set aside the one to two hours, it's sometimes 10 or 15 minutes, frankly, for a UD trial. I mean, it is a bit inconvenient for them to present evidence at a UD trial. And typically, they they retain the uh, the person who served the notice to quit. Uh, they retain other people associated with the management of the property uh, related to establishing that, yes, the uh, – the defendant was in possession, and yes, they've been communicated with, and yes, they're still resisting, uh, moving on from the property, and sometimes they'll speak to title issues, and sometimes they're allowed to speak to title issues, which frankly shouldn't be allowed, but yes, they can do declarations, even if they're just really peripherally involved with any trustee's deed upon sale. Remember, those are recorded here in California and other non-judicial states, after the property goes to sale. And they're meant to have a precedential effect, meaning there's a presumption that they're valid. However invalid they should be seen. However uh, incomplete the chain of title or even fraudulent the chain of title that brought the property to sale. So the the upshot there is that when you're in a UD these days in California, uh, I think it's a good argument. Um, it doesn't apply in motions for summary judgment because motions for summary judgment virtually never involve the per diem where they're asking for the uh, the borrower to um, former borrowers, or at least former. They're asking for them to pay a per diem, and that can be $30 a day. If it's a high-value property, it might be $100 a day. Uh, that adds up. Obviously, if if the UD proceeding goes on for a while and the defendant, homeowner, former homeowner is fighting quite a bit, that could go on three, six months. I mean, that could end up being tens of thousands of dollars that is demanded as a per diem. Now, at trial, even though technically that has to be proved out, it can really only be proved out with some sort of uh, numbers person, accountant person, realtor person. Establish this is the proper fair market value in the neighborhood. They show comparables, etc. Uh, theoretically, that could be done at the motion for summary judgment stage, but that's much more complicated, and it's just not done as a matter of practice. But at the trial stage, absolutely the plaintiffs typically will ask for a per diem and they will typically get it. And that can be thousands of dollars. So when you consider that COVID continues here and the moratorium is not officially over, even though it's kind of on life support in many ways, it's supposed to go through June, but it's, it's on life support in many places, including even Northern California, where it was quite robust as recently as a month ago. Uh, those protections are going away, and one of the upshots of that is that attorneys or pro-pro litigants, when they're in a UD, 
in a non-judicial state, they should or they might, uh, again, this isn't legal advice, just a thought, they might uh, find it useful, and of course they should consult with an attorney about this, they might find it useful to um, basically get in front of the court through a, a motion or, or a pleading or even a, a motion in limine at trial or even orally at trial that uh, the the pro per diem should not apply to them. And why shouldn't it apply to them? In other words, if they were in the property for six months, well, it's a 180 days plus or minus, right? And they could be tasked with paying some large what amounts to a fine, but, you know, it's a holdover per diem added up. Let's say you're there for 200 days, and uh, even if that was like $50 a day, that's already up to $10,000. That's a lot of change. You could be hit with a judgment for that amount. So it behooves the defendant on the UD to ask that the court set aside that at least for the moratorium period, which goes all the way back to March. Because remember, especially in California, where we've had the most draconian lockdown of any place, even more so than New York for the most part, uh, there's been a stay-at-home order in place a large portion of the last year, certainly for months, not just weeks. And if you're ordered to stay home, then whether you're in a UD proceeding or not, how can you be moving to another property? So the idea that, oh, you're you're living rent-free, you know, you're scapegoating the system. On the contrary, you see the government in California is telling you or your county government is telling you, you can't even leave your home. And, you know, you may be under an unlawful detainer, but that's still your home. Unless and until there's a judgment against you, that's still your home. So I think people should look into that. You're using some things to your advantage, including the fact that the moratorium means that you shouldn't be held to those holdover damages. Yeah, the other thing you can do in a UD with COVID-19, and I've mentioned this before, is you can demand a jury trial. Jury trials are very difficult to organize and field under any circumstances, particularly in the COVID-19 era of UDs. That is more true than ever. Now, the bankruptcy fronts. Uh, bankruptcy is another avenue and venue. And by the way, the bankruptcy courts, like federal courts, you're seeing Zoom has become the video of choice for all federal courts, including BK courts. I'm not saying every hearing is on Zoom and every bankruptcy or federal court. I'm just saying, particularly in California, it's extremely common, and I'm seeing a trend all across the country to that effect. So that means that a lot of full-blown hearings, depositions, even evidentiary hearings like a motion for summary judgment, um, and even moving to trials, they're all being held virtually. So you're seeing a much closer and quicker calendar in federal court. As I say, Contrary to what the common person might think, federal court is actually much quicker for a case to be resolved. 
So defendants in these cases of foreclosure have a big uh, incentive to take the case to federal court when they're a defendant because they know it'll be heard quicker. And since they have the law largely on their side, they're hoping to dispose of the case quicker so they can get back to doing what they they do do best in some ways, which is disturbing, but nevertheless true. Not only do they do it best, but they do it with relish and a lot of intention. What am I talking about? Taking that property to sale. <laughs> These institutional people just love taking properties to sale, and they just love, you know, the situation where the homeowner gets kicked out and uh, it may seem odd that I'm saying that institutional uh, players have that kind of relish about what they're doing, but clearly they, clearly they do because they take so many properties to sale, even when there are all kinds of negotiating scenarios in play. And sometimes it's even in the middle of a loan mod review where they're legally bound not to go forward and they end up going forward. So uh, we were able to hit on, you know, the three fundamental topics today. Uh, Neil will be back next week, and I will be back in the near future. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.